Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I thought, so you shot before, before COVID, right? Before quarantine? Yeah, exactly. And we then, shot in 2019. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah, Holy no. Holy cow. Um, and, and you finished editing, what, like a year ago? Or? Yeah, I mean, we made little changes over covid and we were still working on visual effects and and i had the the rare strange experience of being able to pick up a movie and look at it with fresh eyes the same way a screenwriter gets to pick up a script and look at it with fresh eyes right and was that i mean a uh, uh, pleasurable experience yeah i mean i think that's one of the great things about writing is that you get that opportunity. You can put down a script and pick yeah. it up six months later. You can pick it up a year later and you've always grown as a person, you've grown as a writer. And the, if you can somehow forget where the story is going, you can right. surprise yourself and, and then really know, okay, this is a lull, you know, these yeah. 20 pages don't work. I, I can't lie to myself any further. And, but you never get to do that with a movie. You know, yeah. when you're editing a movie, you're always so lost in it. You are always, so aware of everything you had originally intended and everything you are going to get to that you are constantly bringing people into the edit or doing test screenings to try to give yourself those fresh eyes. So to be able to actually not watch the movie for months, which I did during COVID and then rewatch it yeah. and come to terms with lines or scenes that should not be there or should be earlier or should be faster. That was a rare opportunity. Yeah, I would imagine because I mean, I think, and 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 ultimately, um, yeah, as you say, I think the, the the best thing is forgetting, you know, having the time to sort of get away from it, and and um, I mean, imagine a world where you could like take a year and a half off, and then you're entire you could lose sight of the entire thing, and then come back and and look at it with completely fresh eyes. Um, that's how I wrote. Thank you for smoking, and that's how I wrote up in the air. Both of those were scripts. You know, thank you for smoking was about five years of writing, and up in oh, the really? air was about seven years of writing. Um, not continuous, you know. Right, just, right. You start writing, you put it down, you end up working on something else for a year. You come back to it, and you go, "Oh, that's right. Well, you know, yeah. why, why was I banging my head against the wall? I just need to get rid of these ten pages and go here instead." Yeah, no, it's a nice feeling too. It's also, I you know, reading something and going, "Oh, it, it's all right. It's pretty good." Yeah, that's also, that's a nice thing when you're like, you know what, I'm not as untalented as I thought I was. Yeah. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. We're very glad to have you. Very excited. Uh, our our guest is um, Jason Reitman, uh, whose uh, new film um, Ghostbusters Afterlife is out in theaters as we speak. Um, also directing some wonderful. I mean, uh, thank you for um, um, thank you for smoking. 
uh, um, Good Lord Juno, uh, Up in the Air, Young Adults, uh, a whole slew of wonderful films. Um, and uh, now here with um, probably his sort of tiniest, most personal film, I would say. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing, right? Is Ghostbusters Afterlife is obviously the first time I'm making a large franchise film that has big special effects. And yet in many ways, it really is my most personal film. It's a film that I made with my father sitting next to me every single day. I would say, yeah, it would have to be. I mean, in a way that it couldn't be for anybody else, except maybe your father. Uh, yeah. Kind of... and, and obviously is also about the grandchildren of a Ghostbuster finding Ecto-1, finding the proton pack, getting it working again, and picking up that legacy. So an incredibly meta story. Right. <laughs> well, um, uh, well, fantastic. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to, to come in and talk to us. Um, are you, uh, we had had a brief exchange and then, and then not another one on this. So I just want to confirm because you, you're going to bite off something that's terrifying to me that if I were to be a guest on this show and I just want to see, did you, did you, uh, did you make it through or did you, um, uh, you're going to do tonal shifts? We can do tonal shifts. Yeah. Uh, I am, um, I'm, I'm ready to rock and uh, you know, it, it, look, it may not be your best episode. It may be your worst episode, but <laughs> I always prefer to swing for the fences and see what I, happens. I will say. I, I will say, um, yes, you're correct. It, it could be all those things. It will be, uh, I would say that is the most ambitious topic anyone's ever like, cause you know, guests will come on and even, even doing 10 of your favorite movies can be challenging, but Sometimes people come in with something, and I think if I had to do that, could, yeah, I could. Yeah, okay, I could do that. What's your, what's your least ambitious episode you've done? Uh, um, good. I don't. We haven't really, but I mean, I think because you know sometimes people do simply their favorite films, but those right. every, those every so often. Every, we we had we did have a ringer episode at one point where which we didn't air. Well, it was eight minutes, Joe. Well, it it it, it, it was rather short because the person who was being interviewed wasn't really that interesting and, and hadn't, so, hadn't yeah. quite grasped the concept and um yeah was, uh, we'll, we'll tell you off the air but but uh yeah because sometimes people come in and, and you can find that just talking to people about sort of their favorite films that they think about a lot can be a really interesting way to sort of dive into them but um um so even when someone comes in and all they want to talk about is you know citizen kane and seven samurai and breathless Lawrence of arabia comes Lawrence of arabia you find some amazing you know insights into them if not necessarily the films but um, I'm, I'm always on the prowl for those kind of interesting topics. And no one has ever done this. The, I would say the most ambitious in terms of sheer work, can we show you, Thomas Jane came on to talk about his favorite French crime films of the 50s and 60s. And he, Whoa. Had, he had locked himself up in the house, turned his phone off, watched them all and researched the living shit out of them. So when we're approaching new guests and they go, which one should I listen to? I, I don't, don't favorite. I go, don't listen to Thomas Jane because you'll run for the wow. hills. <laughs> So this is like this is like the Rafifi era of oh, yeah. uh, French crime films. Yep, yep. Uh, it's a great episode. We love him for doing it, and that would terrify me if I were a potential guest. That's extraordinary work. But yeah, yep. He takes it. He I am not that prepared. <laughs> but let's 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 do this, man. I'm, this is an impressive topic. I, I just saw a movie that um, uh, has got some of the most amazing tonal shifts I've I've ever seen in American film, and. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very psyched for everyone. I just saw one as well. What did you see? Well, I just saw Titan or Titan. I, oh, I'm, really? I, oh, I, seen I, it. Yeah. I don't think I can uh, presume to know how it's pronounced. I actually, it's funny. I've been promoting Ghostbusters and I went on a French television show and attempted to speak French for two sentences and let down 
my French mother and every French teacher I had in high school. It was just a debacle. Don't you mean a debacle? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I have some pre-programmed lines because I was born in Montreal. People presume that I can speak French and I have, I have three sentences that I can rattle off pretty quickly that sound as though I know what I'm doing and then quickly segue back to English. And I went on television and even blew those. It was, <laughs> it was really sad. Accoucher avec moi. Yeah, exactly. Bonjour, <laughs> Guy. <laughs> but but, uh, uh, but uh, Titan, which I'm just yes. going to call it that if that's okay, just sure. so, you know, I'd rather mispronunciate uh, the word as an American, uh, exemplifies the thing that I wanted to talk to you about today. Really? Okay. Because... I'm, I'm very psyched to see it because I think any movie that um, sends people running screaming into the street. <laughs> uh, is, and uh, I'm not a huge body serious. horror fan. Like yeah. that's not my genre. I am definitely someone who needs to cover my eyes while I'm watching a movie. If it starts to get gory, it doesn't matter that I grew up around film and grew up around special effects. Uh, and that your father made cannibal girls. Yeah. Your father. had a, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, I made Cannibal Girls and and also worked with David Cronenberg for years Cronenberg, before he yeah. ended up directing yeah, sure. himself. Uh, your bro. So I I definitely don't react well to body horror, but this film is amazing. And the filmmaker's first film was called Raw. It's Raw, exquisite. Yeah. It's a must-see and had some of the similar things going on. Oh, so wait, so you, you managed to sit through Raw, too? Yeah. That gets, okay, interesting. No, I'll do it. I mean, look, for a great film, I'm there. <laughs> right, right. On on a film that I don't love quite as much, mm. uh, like there's certain people who love, like there's that amazing, what is the genre festival that happens in Los Angeles? It happens at the Egyptian. Oh, Beyond uh, Fest. Yeah. There's yeah. people who go to Beyond Fest. They sit there, they'll do 12 hours straight and they just watch, you know, the meat grinder. And yeah. I, I, I have to admit that I, I definitely struggle. I struggle with that. Like Hellraiser is not a film that I can, that I could watch easily. But Raw was brilliant. That's interesting because I because I would feel at least for, for me, you know, take Raw and then take a movie that doesn't. Um, uh, I don't love Hellraiser the way a lot of people do, but take take that one. I would imagine that the the gore and the violence and so forth in something like Raw is more impactful on you when you are actually being moved by the film. Does that make sense? Yeah, but if the director is swinging for the fences and connecting. I can almost forgive them of anything. Got it. Uh, and, 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 and I mean anything. I mean, even if they're, the views of their film are reprehensible, but the directing is brilliant, mm -hmm. I'm kind of there. Uh, just because I love movies so damn much and I love great directing so much, um, I'm actually, in a strange way, more thrilled. If, uh, you know, it's one thing if a director to, you know, makes a movie that agrees with everything I already feel. But if I disagree with everything they still say and everything they feel, and yet they are somehow plucking at my heart, oh my God. I mean, that's, that is one I will revisit. Have you right. seen a Serbian film? Uh, sorry, <clears throat> is it a film called a Serbian film or are yes. you saying it's yeah, a film Serbian called a Serbian film? film. Okay. <laughs> No, I haven't. They're all like that, is what Joe means. Every single time. <laughs> um, I mean, I have uh, seen a film from Serbia, but I have not seen a film called a Serbian film. It's maybe not. I maybe not. That one's a little rough. It, it is amazingly well made. It's it's a um, really well made movie, but it's a tough sit. Got very, it. Very tough sit. Well, I mean, look, and Titan is a tough sit. It's it's a difficult film. It's a film that challenges the audience and. Um, 
and it is brave in the way that French films are often more brave than any, uh, anyone else's. And, and it does the thing that I want to talk about today, which is a tonal shift. And this is a thing that really upsets a lot of audiences. You know, Zemeckis, you know, once when asked about why he gave away the ending of both Castaway and What Lies Beneath in the trailer, said, you look, a movie, an audience wants to know what they're in for. I, I don't mind telling them what the experience is going to be. And this is a huge divide, obviously, on filmmakers. There's filmmakers who believe don't show them anything. The, the filmmakers show them everything. And with a tonal shift, you are straight up fucking with the audience. You are telling them, oh, it's going to be this one thing. And then halfway through the film, you let them know, oh, by the way, that's not what we're doing at all. Um, you thought you were in a car, you're in a plane. We're going somewhere completely different. Are you with us? Yeah. And when the director does that, when they ask me that question, that is the moment that I, I buckle up and I couldn't be more thrilled to be in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that goes to, in fact, I won't, I won't say, I'll, I'll tell you off the air because the movie I was referencing hasn't come out yet, but it's got a trailer out that makes it look like just a comedy. Right. And, and um, I realize they have to do that because you can't, you can't do big tonal shifts in a trailer, A. And B, you don't want to give that up, right? As you say, you want them to think they're getting onto an airplane and they're ending up on a horse or whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah. And look, so with Titan, and I'm not going to ruin this movie because you haven't, you haven't seen it yet, uh, and, and thus also not ruin it for your audience. You begin with a woman and she's fascinating. Just like in Raw, this director has given us a, uh, like a new character by an actress I am not familiar with that uh, for me is immediately iconic. And we follow her for half her journey and then halfway through the movie, we cut to a new character, an adult man. You do not know who he is. We are completely on his journey. And the moment he enters the film, the tone shifts, the reason we're there shifts. Uh, our, our destination is, is completely unknown out of a sudden. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, the genre shifts. And, and I find that just absolutely delightful. I, I, I want to go into specifics, but we, we could do that on other films because I don't want to. I don't want to ruin this one for you. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm. The price I pay sometimes is movies get ruined, but in, insofar as I think it just started streaming and was only in theaters briefly, I feel like that's one we shouldn't. Uh, I don't know, Joe, you're the ref. What do you think? No, I haven't seen it either. Neither of us have seen it. Yeah, you guys can go. You guys can go watch that one, and I'll, and I'll shift to a one that I think everyone has probably seen, and I'll, I'll shift to Million Dollar Baby. There you. Go. All right, so. Million Dollar Baby completely sells itself as a boxing movie and does so so completely that it, it pulls the trick that every sports movie does and it gets you involved in the idea of whether she's going to win or not. And right. it's a perfect hook. It's such good bait because, because it doesn't matter how many sports movies you've seen, it, a sports movie, like, it, it's, it's drugs. It's, it, it, like, there's no way to get around the idea that you want your hero to win at whatever the hell they are doing. Um, I'm, I don't like sports and I love sports movies. I mean, yeah, yeah it is. There's something about them. They're just they, they are like catnip. I mean, you yeah. can get involved in like sports you don't even care about. I mean, I like even movies like, like uh, a downhill racer or like breaking away or like, these are some of my favorite movies yeah. that involve sports. I don't think about ever. I would never watch yeah. a bike race. You know, I would right. never watch downhill racing. Um, and Million Dollar Baby involves boxing, a movie, you know, apparently every director needs to make a movie about boxing, uh, a sport that does not interest me whatsoever. And, yet, and I feel there is one in your future. Oh, God. Uh, I don't know what boxing movie I would make. But halfway through, 
you realize you're watching a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. Hillary Swank, you know, has this, you know, horrific accident. And you are now no longer watching a movie about whether or not uh, boxing will redeem her life. And you were watching a movie about staring into the abyss and how life can be unexpected. And it does so in a film that is unexpected tonally. Yeah. And that's one of the rare cases where I think audiences went with it. And I don't know why. Yeah. Well, um, that's a good question. I mean, that's a really good question because yeah, it was a, it was a big hit. It, uh, she won an Oscar um, or did she get nominated? Did she win? I no, she totally won. That was her second win after boys don't cry. And I'm not she, sure. It's, I'm not sure if it's because people just loved Clint Eastwood. I'm not sure if it's because people just love Hillary Swank. Um, yeah. What do you think? Can I say something absolutely horrible? <laughs> Maybe they just love watching Hillary Swank get beaten to death. <laughs> I don't gets, think that's it. That's but a that's, horrible thing. But, but she's we'll, won we'll two be, we'll Oscars. Be for our new co-host. <laughs> I, I don't. She's lovely. I just like, she's won an Oscar. She's won two Oscars, both for being in movies where she gets uh, beaten up and dies. It's kind of. Well, a, I mean. That's a narrow lane. But. I mean, I think we, I think we inherently enjoy watching beautiful people abuse themselves on screen. I, I, I think that's kind of that goes back as far as I can yeah. remember. And, uh, but there's also, there's a real love story in, in million dollar baby. And that I think is what carries you through that total shift. Cause between her and Clint, you know, there's that great relationship. Um, yeah. I mean, he's learning how to be a dad and, uh, and they're both facing the, the concept of not existing. And that's something that obviously we all, that's the great question. That's what, that's what we yeah. all think about. Um, but, uh, it survives it. And, and I don't know why, but it successfully makes that shift, you know, halfway through. Um, here's another one. Uh, here's another one. Uh, totally different. Uh, Dust Till Dawn. Mm-hmm. Dust Till Dawn, you know, is this, uh, is the Robert Rodriguez uh, yeah. film that, that stars George Clooney and, and, and Quentin Tarantino. And that's a film that advertises itself as one film. And then all of a sudden switches. Although, I think in that case, they were selling themselves from the beginning that, hey, there's going to be this shift. All of a sudden, it's going to be kind of this vampire movie. Right. Because, yeah, but it does does spend a good deal of time with them as as the bank robbers before they... Aren't they bank robbers? I know they're fugitives from the law. It's been a long time. You know what? I, I actually, it's been a long time for me, too, and I actually don't remember why they wind up at that, uh, at that place, but... Uh, but it's clear that Rodriguez and Tarantino were into the idea of the shift and that is exactly yeah. why they did it. Yeah. Well, cause normally in a movie like that, you start with, um, if you're going to spend a lot of time with characters in some other milieu, uh, uh, forgive my pronunciation. Um, you're going to hint going in at what's happening. You're going to see a vampire attack or something, and then you're going to see our characters. You're going to see mm-hmm. some, but that movie just presents itself as a movie about criminals for a significant period of time. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves in this nightclub. Well, you, and it's interesting because you just said, you know, it presents and it made me think of the relationship the audience has with the filmmaker. I think so much of what we do is often trying to prove to the audience that they could be confident in us as storytellers, right? right? Like, even as we look at the first act of our film, we're always trying to find that moment. Uh, and tell me if this is the same for both of you, but 
I now know for each of my movies, what is the moment I have them? And because it's never literally the first frame or first shot. I mean, you know, you'd have to be, a, you know, a, there's only a few brilliant filmmakers who probably could do that. But I always know, oh, it's five minutes in or it's 15 minutes in. This moment happens. That line of dialogue happens. These two characters meet. Their chemistry is undeniable. There's a moment where you go, and this is when I have them. And we know that because we're so interested in the audience having confidence in us as stories, storytellers and the stories themselves. And what's unique about the films that we're discussing right now is they are movies that feature a filmmaker who is breaking that bond on purpose with the audience. Right. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah, in a way kind of taking it for granted that, the audience is with them. Yeah, and I guess that's why I admire them so much. I love their bravery. I love the fact that uh, they basically like snip the safety belt off their passenger. They are purposely trying to tell the audience, you are not safe here. Right. You thought you knew where you were. I'm, I'm taking all confidence out of your hands. That We could drive right over the edge right now. Yeah. Well, the famous one that doesn't work. I mean, I, I love the film, but I guess for audiences, I don't know if you're uh, the great Waldo Pepper. Never seen. Which is, um, it's just sort of, you know, it's a charming film that sort of is chugging along for a good deal of time. And then a character, I'll just say a character you love just unexpectedly just. And I think audiences, William, William Goldman wrote about it in his book. And it was just, he just said it was the big mistake with that film and audiences just went, fuck this noise. And, oh, really? And they, uh, so, so the filmmakers. Yeah, oh, they, really? they tuned out. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing film and that scene is incredibly. But an example of a movie where it does work is Psycho. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Which of course, you know, think, you think you know who the lead character is in the movie and then you get to the point where you discover the lead character is not only not, not the lead character, but it's dead. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a real switch because nobody expected that twist unless they read the book. Right. I'm wondering how soon that shifted in the perception of that film. You know, I was, you know, uh, was it a year later? Was it five years later? Was it 10 years later that people basically knew the bit? Right. And because Psycho is a classic to this day. People still love it, uh, whether they know going in or not. I wish I could have seen that first day. Yes. And had that experience of realizing halfway through the film, I had no idea what was happening or what I was in for. Well, so I was thinking about that recently. Um, uh, I saw Edgar Wright's new film and there's an amazing, I, I love the film. There's an amazing sequence towards the end that even to describe, you give up massive plot points. Right. You can't talk about probably the most bravura piece of filmmaking in the movie with anyone until the movie becomes, you know, commonly understood. But I, I, it made me think of like, what would that be like uh, if you were a vaguely conscientious film goer and you're walking out of Psycho on day one and people are like, what's your favorite scene? You're like, can't tell you, can't tell you. Well, what's it about? Mm, can't tell you. It's about a lady who robs a bank. <laughs> now, the director that I think has the most confidence in doing this is Michael Haneke. Like if I think about directors alive today who seem to care the least about upsetting the audience and not upsetting the audience with graphic visuals or, you know, over, you know, uh, violence or sexuality or language, but strictly this idea of making the audience feel unsafe in their hands. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's good at that. And my, and my favorite of his is funny games. 
And this is a polarizing movie. Which, I know which, some, which, ver which, which version? Oh, I mean the original. I I, I mean it's know. hard to it's hard to conceive of him making that remake. I mean, well, but he, you know, the reason. I mean, it's it's, it's I, I understand it, and I, I wonder he. It was always conceived to be an American film because he felt he was commenting primarily on sort of American movies and American audiences. Um, and and it did get seen, I would imagine, by a lot of people in America who didn't see the original. Oh, that's interesting. So it doesn't it doesn't feel like the Psycho remake quite, but yeah, it's kind of an odd, it's an odd one. Um, oh, I I adore that film. I adore its confidence. I I loved the the that initial experience of watching it and having no idea what the hell he was doing and what games he was playing with my mind. Um, I, I don't think I've ever had an experience watching a movie like Funny Games, mm -hmm. where the director is continually reminding me that I am in a movie, that my desire for things to work out is futile, that, you know, <laughs> that this planet does not care about me and will not miss me when I'm gone. And, he. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, it's funny. I had a great experience watching another one of his films. I was at a film festival in the Czech Republic called Kalavivari. Uh, and it's one of the oldest film festivals in the world. And they... They were not using subtitles. They were using live translators for their movies. So it was like being in the UN. Like you had a little, you know, earpiece, and there's booths along the back of the theater. I and mean, we were in a makeshift hotel ballroom, as film festivals often are. And this young woman, maybe a college student, is translating his movie, The Piano Teacher, which is a, a fairly rough, dark sexual film. And she's getting embarrassed <laughs> as the movie's playing. So as these scenes are playing on screen, and I can tell how heavy they are, she's giggling in my ears because she's embarrassed to say what's happening on screen. <laughs> Which I think is actually the best way to watch a Michael Hattie. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> that is kind of amazing. Yeah, you wonder if that was intentional on his part. or Exactly. <laughs> wow. But I dream about being that brave. Yeah. I, well, yeah, but I, I will also say, I mean, just for, you know, not, it's not to be a lot, but I, I will wait. I'm going to make a prediction. Okay. You ready? Yeah. I'm, I will. And I will bet you $50 that um, Ghostbusters makes more money opening weekend than both funny games versions combined. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe we'll see. And since I'm not happier. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm really proud of Ghostbusters. And, and obviously it's been kind of an extraordinary journey to make a movie with my family and with my father that is about family. And look, with each movie, we're trying to do something different personally. You know, personally, obviously, yeah. Imagine, okay, you're talking about having the, the courage. I mean, this would be the kind of thing that you would only do if you found out you had terminal cancer and nobody else knew. You make the new Ghostbusters film and what nobody knows is you're doing the Michael Haneke version. <laughs> oh my All God. You know it is like, just tell the audience. Uh, don't tempt themselves. me. You have no idea how much I would, <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Um, well, it's interesting, right? Because I feel like whenever I've come close to trying to do that, I, I'm always surprised that the audience is not happy that I did it. <laughs> and I have to, I have to learn that whatever that, whatever coldness and stoicism that Haneke has that allows him to make the films that he does. I don't think I have, I think I'm too sensitive at the end. It's of the also day. government subsidies too, isn't it? Doesn't he get, um, 
Yeah, yeah but like, hard to make those pictures for financiers. Yeah, <laughs> but it's also it's also just hard to do it as a sensitive human being, right? Right. Like to be a filmmaker, to be a storyteller, you have to be sensitive. The only way to understand what will move an audience and what will make them feel a certain way requires an overt sensitivity. All of us grew up really sensitive kids, really feeling a lot, you know, and we were probably like, none of us were really confident as kids or if, if, if we were, we were, it was, it was bullshit ego over, you know, that was there just to protect how sensitive we were. Right. And that's, that's why we became filmmakers. So to, to have all those qualities and then somehow be insensitive enough to beat the shit out of the audience or really trick them in a very yeah. cruel way yeah. and offer them no sugar at the end. Yeah. I don't care how much money they're giving you or not giving you or what's on the line or what's not on the line. It's hard just to, to do. Just it's to hard. sit in the movie theater and know that you are, uh, you are tripping the audience and after you trip them, they look at you and ask, why did you trip me? And you say, oh, I wouldn't trip you again. And then you trip them again. Like, that's what Heineke is doing. <laughs> but he does like 50 times in a movie. So it's like a great Mickey Spillane line is the end of I, the jury. And like the, 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 the woman who's the villain that my camera seems to have fallen in love with. And he shoots her. And she goes, how could you? And he goes, it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Now, one director who's done it uh, more recently is... Darren Aronofsky with Mother. Oh yes. Now there's a filmmaker. <laughs> Opening night at the ArcLight. I have I I. <laughs> working at the top of his game. Yep. <laughs> working with a lot of juice, and I think I think we all all three understand you know what I mean by that. There's a moment when you're coming off films that got so much heat on them that as a director, as a storyteller, you just got juice. You got the power to make really what you want to make. Oh, and a major movie star as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was an incredible. <laughs> so with Mother, you're getting the film that he wanted to make 1,000%. And it's complicated. I mean, just purely as a directorial effort, it's like, it, it's mind-boggling what he achieved yeah. inside one location on these shots where every single shot in the film is you know a puzzle within a puzzle within a puzzle um and and really begins as a as a mystery of what someone's doing in a house and then you realize oh no no i'm not watching that yeah at odd i am i'm watching this painful allegory uh that he said was a biblical allegory although for my money is completely an allegory about what it means to be a director and the way that you cut off people in your life momentarily out of the selfishness of directing uh, all those things, but absolutely. I, mean, I, a, I can't a punch to the face ever. Uh, I, I love, how do I put this? Cause I, I, I loved hating that movie. I hated loving it. You know, does mm -hmm. that make any sense? I'm sitting there and you're starting to realize what's happening and you're starting to hear the audience, right? Angrier and angrier. And, and somehow watching it with an audience that was getting angry forced me to confront what was going on with me and to sort of kind of embrace the joy of what he was doing, even though it was making me want to hit him in the head with a hammer. Right. <laughs> I love and, that film. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, I me really too. Love that film and, and it's ghastly. 
Right. And it's interesting because like earlier I was talking about gore, right? And it takes a, it takes a certain amount of confidence to show a lot of gore on screen because you know what you're, you know, you're putting the audience through visually. Yeah. Um, it's a whole other thing to be cruel with the audience from a point of view of storytelling. Yeah. And when I look at Mother and I look at Aronofsky, I have to admit, I envy that ability to be cruel. Or easy. I mean, easy. There, there is a weird joy there and there's a, uh, but yeah, I think ultimately there's, there's literally no way. I mean, I cannot imagine him sitting in a theater opening night and being shocked to see that response. Well, I wonder, I mean, but you bring up a great point and I wonder, I like, I, my sense of him having, and by the way, I don't know him is that there's got to be a part of him that wishes the audience was grateful for the experience and is baffled when the audience rejects it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, Joe, you being so, did you, uh, were, were, did you, well, I, you know, I, I had uh, the, the usual mixed feelings while watching the movie because it does go in all these bizarre directions and, and, and asks to be taken seriously on a number of levels while telling a story that is patently impossible. Uh, and I really did admire it while I was watching it. I didn't like it in the sense that, you know, it's not a likable movie, but I really did admire the, the, the way that he made it and the way that it's played. And, and it's certainly really well directed and, uh, and produced. And it's, 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 a, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a piece of art. And uh, it's not exactly uh, an entertainment miracle, <laughs> but it is engrossing as hell. And I, uh, I've never met anybody who admitted to having this be one of their favorite movies <laughs> because right. it's just too hard. It's just too hard. But what he was trying to do is, is rare in movies. It's rare that people try to climb that hill, I think. David Lynch occasionally. Something like Mulholland Drive can can get up there, but this is this is in a different category because it's so self-contained and it's so biblical. Totally agree. And and by the way, I, I'm definitely not making a list right now of my favorite movies. I mean, no, uh, no, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> if I was making a list of my favorite movies, I mean, they would be movies that that did make me feel good. Like I'm right. not I, I'm not immune to feeling good, but. Uh, but I really admire the filmmakers uh, who act brave in, in whatever way you want to define brave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think just risking that, or in some case, because I don't think he was risking. I think he knew what he was doing. And that is an interesting question you ask about his feeling about the audience response. But um, yeah, that, that thing where you're even just risking alienating your audience, I think is always kind of admirable. Um, I mean, and you, you've done it too. I mean, we did not bring you out here to blow smoke in your ass, but I mean, I, I, I worship young adult and that is a movie that um, I think has, has moments that some people are expecting to go right. And they turn very far to the left and are kind of shocked by it. I mean, young adult it's, is an ugly mirror. It's a mirror that reflects the, the ugly parts of ourselves. And, and that's why I really love the script by Diablo Cody because she fearlessly looked in the mirror and said, all right, here's all the shit I'm embarrassed about. And, <laughs> And 
And with Diablo and I, I'm always amazed by how similar our brains are and how much I recognize in those characters. Uh, interestingly, the, the film that I thought, if, if it was going to be a film of mine that made this list, it wouldn't be Young Adult. It would probably be Tully. Because mm, Tully is a movie that you spend half the movie thinking you're watching a movie about early parenthood and the way that a couple is able to tackle that and will be this movie in which, you know, halfway through the movie, you'll go through those normal moves in which they are challenged, but they get closer. And, you know, being, you know, being a parent, you know, only makes you happier. And, and that the, the latter half of the movie will have the warmth that Juno did when <laughs> instead, you know, it's about postpartum. It's about, you know, thinly losing grasp of reality and what happens to you, what happens to your partner. You know, are you having a shared experience or not? When you become a parent, all these things that are supposed to be inevitable, that uh, you are inherently supposed to know how to be a mom or a dad uh, are just not true. And of course, the movie turns and you, and you suddenly realize, all right, I wasn't watching what I thought I was watching at all. I think I need to go back and watch this again. And it was a, it was a really fun movie to make because as a director, we were making two movies at once. Uh, a movie that you would watch with one understanding the first time. And if you watched it the second time, you would realize that, no, the whole film was directed to be watched the other way uh, as well. And, and I remember premiering that film at Sundance and audiences feeling, particularly uh, Juno fans, being really confounded as to why we would make this film. Right. And why we want to take them on, the, take them on that experience. Uh, and, and, and if they were not parents, and they really did not know what we were talking about. Even more so, like, why would you want us to feel this way? Yeah, yeah. But then why at the same time, why would you, why would you want to make Juno again? We made it. True. And, you know, and if I look back, uh, um, in many ways, I'm much more proud of Young Adult and Tully than I am of Juno. Uh, Juno, and I, like, I guess I'd be curious about you know, your answers to these questions as well. Uh, you never expect what is going to be successful in what you make. Something catches fire, and for whatever reason, it just resonates with the audience, and they run with it, and it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs in their hearts, and, and people will ask you for the rest of your life, you know, why did, you know, why did it click? And you don't really know. You can give as many answers as you want, but you don't know. Um, and, and that's how I feel about Juno. We made this tiny little movie and somehow it, it caught a wave. But when I look at Young Adult and Tully, I knew those were movies that would otherwise not get made. And they were, they were me as a storyteller and Diablo as a storyteller acting as brave as we could. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true though. You know, um, not not quite the same thing, but I just met somebody who's uh, in an entirely different line of work from us uh, last week who made a, it will not read your fucking script joke. And that article's 13 years old now and just will not die. No, that article's amazing. <laughs> it was a blog post. That's all it was. <laughs> it's going to be on my gravestone. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah. You don't know. You don't know. But, but what's interesting, what you're talking about though, is sort of filmmakers from like Haneke and I suppose Aronofsky is almost, uh, that, how how do you get to that point where you don't care? Well, I mean, in a good and, way, you know. Yeah, I mean, and and look, they're clearly both sensitive people. You can't be insensitive and make movies as right. as well as they do, and tell stories as well as they do, and understand how their work is going to affect people. Like yeah. uh, you know, um, 
I don't think they're sociopaths. Like, I think they feel a lot. Hey, so we just want to take a quick break from our conversation with the director of this weekend's top performing box office hit, Ghostbusters Afterlife, the lovely Jason Reitman, and thank our sponsors, uh, MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website, uh, where they sell, what do they sell, Joe? Movies, movies, movies. That's right. Uh, they're not only fans of our show, but they feature many of the movies we talk about here, so you can easily find them to add to your collection. Yeah, don't waste your time streaming or looking for your favorites on TV. You can own them. So click the Movies Unlimited banner on our website and buy your favorites from hard-to-find films, imports, and more. Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website where shipping is always free on orders over $50. So don't be afraid to spend a lot. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, let's get back into it with Jason Reitman. I guess I'd be curious for both of you. What movie of each of yours do you feel were your bravest? And whether that coincides with their success or coincides with their, I don't want to say lack of success, but we all have high moments, low moments. We have moments that connected, didn't connect. Um did you do you feel like your bravest moments connected with success or not? That'd be more of a Joe. I mean, I've got I've got a lot of straight to video movies and and uh, one one theatrical feature I'm very proud of, but um, uh, and a lot of scripts that you know that's the the joy of doing what I do is you, you you work and you work and you work and you get paid and the stuff just sits in a pile somewhere. It's like you know, so I could talk about scripts that no one knows anything about, but um, Joe, I mean, what? I, well, you know, obviously the 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 movie that made all all the money and made my my name is Grummel's, which was, you know, uh, a movie that I was asked to do, and um, I brought stuff of mine to it. And it was a hard movie to make, and everybody was working very hard, and nobody expected it to do anything. And it turned out to be uh, a phenomenal uh, movie, a big hit, and it made my career. It opened the same day as Ghostbusters, by the way. Yeah, no, I'm aware of that. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and uh, but the movie that I think is more uh, indicative of myself is the second civil war which i made for hbo which not many people have seen uh it's a political movie and um it's it's predicted very accurately a lot of things that have happened since 1997 and uh, every so often it gets revived at some festival or whatever and, and i'm struck anew about some other aspect of society that has now happened that were pre- was predicted in this movie, which is quote supposed to take place in the day after tomorrow, and uh, it, it, it's um, yeah, it, it's probably the, probably my one of my least known movies, but it's probably one of the ones I'm most proud of. And it was and it is it, it was it was risky. HBO didn't like it, and they sort of dumped it, and um, and uh, it was it was it was too it was supposed to be a comedy, but it turned out to be too dark for them, and. Um, it's the most gutting feeling on earth when they, I, I've had, uh, I've had three films. Yeah. I'll call it two where I feel like the studio just let them go. 
And uh, it's, it's kind of impossible to explain to anybody what that feels like. Because uh, you care about something for years of your life and it never gets the chance. Um, yeah, but if, and, you really, if you really care, they use it against you because they don't care and you do and they know that you care and they know you'll kill yourself to, to make your work as good as possible and everything and but they and they they just sort of they play the game and uh you know and if, if you happen to be <laughs> the unfortunate recipients of, of a regime change during the making of your movie uh then it's guaranteed that it's going to be dumped because they don't want anything to be successful that was created by the prior regime mm. and that's happened a couple of times how did it Do you think it made you more brave or less brave after the fact? Uh, I would say more just because, you know, once you've been down the bottom of that hill, uh, you, you don't feel like there's anything you can do that would put you any lower. Uh, and so you just you just try to do, you, you do your own work and you try to put as much of your own personality into the movie as they will let you, which is, mm -hmm. and you have to fight about that. And it doesn't matter what the movie's about or how frivolous the subject is, any hint of personality is often to be stamped out because it might be something that somebody would take offense to or wouldn't appeal to the broadest amount of people. And, and then, of course, the higher the budget, the more pressure there is to have an anonymous kind of a movie. Uh, I, don't, I happen to think that's bad, uh, bad studio um, executive action. They just, I think there's a lot of people who just, I feel running studios who should, should be running delicatessens and if they were, the board of health would close them down. <laughs> you just said something that I'm really interested in. You said that you talked about seeing yourself in the film and how much of yourself you could see in the film. I'm curious how much, when you watch somebody else's work, you see you're looking for the director in the film. And is that always the case? Is it on certain films? Well, um, I like watching movies generally, but I mean, you do look for a personality. I mean, the, 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 the films that I like and the directors I like are people who have personalities and it doesn't mean they make the same film every time out, but there's a certain level of craftsmanship. There's a certain level of uh, attention to the actors or the visuals or whatever that you can pretty much spot. Uh, I, I'm one of those guys who can turn on the TV and I can tell you if there's a black and white movie on, I can tell you what studio it is. I can tell you by the lighting, uh, you know, whether it's a, a, a 50s movie or a 40s movie with the right. Lucas is, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've got it in, in, ingrained in my head. But, uh, but I think personality is the one thing that I think raises directors from the morass of people who just go to work and take the money and go home. Hmm. I don't know, as, as the, as the uh, uh, representative of, of my trade here, I have to point out, sometimes, sometimes that comes from the script. It's frequently, <laughs> but also the choice, of, also the choice yeah. of script. Correct. And the yeah. decision whether to make the movie or not. You know, I've Absolutely. been offered some pretty, pretty successful movies, but I, did, I said, I'm, this is not, I'm not the guy to yeah, do this. Stuff. You have to get somebody who really is into this. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just going to be going through the motions. I mean, I've found, I, I, you know, when I think about the, the, the worst heartbreak was a project I spent a long time on. And uh, towards the end, we had a, a director I could not believe my good fortune. And um, it was a joy spending time with him. And, and uh, the entire thing just fell apart on a kind of arbitrary rights whim that just, you know, in this one day you've been working on a thing for 14 months and 
everything's going incredibly well and it looks like it's going to be and the next day it's just dead completely dead and um i liken it to uh uh, I, I used to say, it's like you, you, you go to a bar, uh, you meet someone you fall madly in love, you go home, um, you know, they, they, they get you pregnant. You take it up to about the eight month mark and then, uh, you fall down the stairs and the baby dies and you have to be able to get up and go back to that bar, uh, tomorrow night and meet somebody else who will knock mm. you up. And it's, um, you know, trying not to learn to, uh, um, to be hurt by that stuff, I think is one of the great challenges of the business, but, um, you can become very cynical i think uh who is a director that you you either of you or both of you enjoy spending time with and that is part of your experience of the movie is you were looking forward to the film because seeing their movie is an opportunity to spend time with them as a storyteller you mean spending time with them through their movie or yeah uh and i'm and current current like uh, I, I, I would, say current so that because you can include i, I, I would say it. i would say edgar wright at the moment uh, i mm. think edgar is a really really talented filmmaker who's um hasn't had quite the breaks that i think he should have had um but he's now currently you know he gets hired and he makes pictures and they're very indicative of who he is uh and he's a, he's a lot of fun to be around personally and guillermo del toro is also a, a guy who's really a lot of fun to be around. I know you mean about both of them. They uh, not only do you get their personalities in their film, but you can tell how much they love movies while watching their films. Like mm -hmm. you can just read that in every single shot. They love watching movies. They love making movies. They love the craft. Uh, uh, in the same way that you do with Quentin, they just uh, they're they're soaked in that in that feeling you have as a kid when all you want to do is talk about movies, you can't find anyone who wants to talk about them quite as much as you do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the, if it's filmmakers, you know, if it's directors, um, uh, and I don't know them. Um, I met one of them once for about 35 seconds, uh, the Wachowskis do that for mm -hmm. me. There's, there's something to their movies, um, that even though they tend to trade in these sort of giant epic, uh, you know, um, big budget extravaganzas that, uh, is so personal and joyful. It's like the, the difference between Oshowski's film about almost, you know, an alien invasion and almost anybody else's is, is night and day for me. Right. Um, went back and watched Bound for the first time in a thousand years. Oh, that movie's was like, great. It was there from the get-go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just joyful. Um, just amazing. It's one of those movies too that I think uh, as, as fun as the script is, and I think there's, it, it, the movie just exceeds the narrative by leaps and bounds. Like the story's pretty good. The direction is astonishing. And that has another director in it, Richard Serafian. That's right. Who's an actor in that picture. That's right. Made vanishing point. <laughs> but uh yeah, how about how about uh, ah you're you're getting away. Wait, wait, he's getting away from the topic here, Joe. Where's I apologize. He's turning it over. <laughs> he's turning it over to us to say I know, I know. <laughs> No, not at all. I just look, uh, look, I love spending time with He's storytellers conversation and <laughs> I love spending time with storytellers. I love asking questions like this for people who love movies just as much as I do, particularly people yeah. who know way more about movies than I do. And, uh, and look, I mean, this is all we ever want to do, right? Pretty much. Is, is spend time <laughs> around movies, talking to movies, you're in, either in a movie theater or, yep. you know, you know, back, you know, when you're a kid, you're just like, you know, you're waiting for class to start talking about them. So, no, this is the good stuff. Yeah, no, it really is. I mean, it's at the core of it. It's why we do the show, you know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, hey, there's somebody made an interesting film. Let's, let's talk to them about movies. Mm -hmm. 
I love the people you mentioned. Uh, I love uh, every time I watch one of Quentin's film, I feel like I'm spending time with him, and uh, and particularly the last one. Once upon a time in Hollywood, just I, I just wanted to yeah. kind of live inside that film. Um, uh, Alexander Payne makes me feel that way. Andrea Arnold makes me feel that way. I'm a huge fan of hers, and I, I really loved American Honey, and uh, all the way back to her first short film, Wasp. And that's a director who I just I just want to live inside her films. Huh. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not up on her. Uh, I, I should be. Uh, oh, uh, if you haven't seen Fish Tank or Red Road, you got it. They're no, just... I've seen Fish Tank. Um, oh, okay. And, and loved it. Uh, but yeah. that's that's it. Um, and go and deep. She, she, you know, she's she's extraordinarily talented. and Someone yeah. I just couldn't have more confidence in as a as a storyteller. Uh, yeah, God, Fish Tank is is it's everything. I've shown that to so many people, and it's. Um, a movie in which seemingly very little happens, and yet you're just buried in the hearts of these characters. Um, uh, to stay on topic, uh, yeah. Rustin Bone, the French film, I thought was another a great example of a tonal shifter where you think you're watching one movie and then all of a sudden uh, you realize that the director has completely different plans for you. Uh, also, Blue Collar. Blue Collar is a film where... Uh, you think you're watching a comedy? You think you're watching uh, a movie that'll be just hanging with the guys and then all of a sudden you're watching a very political film? You're watching basically a political, like you're in, you know, you're in Clute all of a sudden, you know, it just, it just shifts on you. Yeah, it is. It's funny. I, 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 um, I, I worship that film and uh, um, uh, consider it a, a an achievement of some sort that the British Blu-ray has my trailers from Hell commentary on it. I'm so proud of that. <laughs> but I, I remember seeing that. I saw that in theaters as a kid. And I don't know for some reason I didn't expect a comedy. And I go back now and I look at it, and especially when I see it with audiences, I haven't seen it before. And you realize that people are taking it that way at first. You're right. It just sort of somehow that that aspect of it eluded me. Maybe because I've been. I think when I saw it, it had been so hammered into me. This is Richard Pryor's dramatic debut, so don't expect comedy. Whereas well, now the time is, yeah. It's, that's also what's so important about getting back into movie theaters, right? Is we lose sight of how important it is to experience it en masse and yeah. how that shifts your perception of what genre you're watching. Like we right. talk a lot about, obviously it's like, oh, we want a great, we want great picture, we want great sound. I mean, these things are obvious. And, uh, and we talk even just about, you know, just like, uh, being part of your community. Great. But there's also that, that shift that happens when an audience's experience starts to meld with whatever you're feeling. And, and it makes you realize what this movie is for other people simultaneously. And I, I don't know, uh, has that ever changed a movie for you or has it ever, I'm sure a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that colors every movie that you see. I mean, if you can see it in a, in a, you know, a theater with only 12 people, and that's one thing. But if you see it in a, you know, with a, a group of people whose emotions can be sort of you know, spread out over the, over the theater, I mean, it does color your response. Oh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I remember, look uh, I remember going to see Black Panther opening day uh, with a largely African-American crowd. And seeing all the kids who came dressed as Black Panther and how important it was to them and how important it was to their parents that their kids got to see that. And that completely changed that, the experience of watching that film for me that I would have never gotten if I had just watched that at Home Alone. If I watched oh, yeah, Home Alone, yeah. I'd go, fantastic Marvel That's action fun. film. Right. See that in the audience. 
And I go, oh, this is a moment. I am present for a moment. And I'm lucky enough to experience that. Uh, or, oh my God, watching American Psycho at Sundance and no one knowing that it's a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm just laughing alone in an audience of a thousand people. It's like, it's Eccles, you know, and it's like the, the, the huge house and they, it, no one's aware that they're watching a comedy yet. But but watching them slowly, I mean, people sort of eventually figure that out. I think with that film, or eventually, you know, but not in that screening, not in really? that screening. Oh wow, wow. that's how uh, that's how I first watched um, Doctor Strangelove. I saw it when it first opened in New York. Oh my God, and, tell me about that. And it was uh, no nobody laughed. Nobody laughed. It was it, 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 the, the 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 Cuban Missile Crisis had been so devastating to people that they took it. They were just as serious as they were when they watched Failsafe. But this is Doctor Strangelove, and it took a long time for people to go. You know, this is this is a comedy. I mean, this is all, because you can you can look at Doctor Strangelove in a certain way and say, well, you know, this is just a these people are all crazy. You know, this is a movie about crazy people, and and have it be very sad. But the fact is that it's it's a hilarious movie. Now, and yet nobody laughed the first time it came out. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, and you'll probably know this better than I do, uh, but. While writing, Kubrick and Terry Southern were trying to write the dramatic version, right? And they just he kept cracking each other doing, up, and they just couldn't help but make each other laugh. It was a book called Red Alert, mm -hmm. uh, and it was a serious book about that subject. And he started to make, uh, you know, to work on it, and he realized that there were so many absurdities in it that he couldn't take it seriously. And that's when I think I think Southern came in after. Uh, Kubrick had already started oh, working it. on it, and they said, "We you know we can let's just go with this. Let's just you know let's just exaggerate all this stuff." Much much like the Zucker brothers, you know, built their careers on on exaggerating the the the, the tropes of all the movies that they were making fun of. Right. They just took all the things in the movie, all the shots of the airplane cockpits or whatever, and it, whereas in the original movie. Zero hour, Dan Andrews doesn't, he does not remember how to fly the plane. And he goes in and he sees it and the, the, the instrument panel looks very formidable. But in their movie, the instrument panel pans and it just keeps panning and keeps panning and keeps panning. Right, and it right, right. like it's a spaceship or something. And, but every, the, the genius of that movie, Airplane, is that all of the exaggerations are all based on a real dramatic incident, which is Arthur Haley's original screenplay for Zero right. Hour, which is a straight screenplay. But it's but it's got a, enough dramatic heft that it can carry all those jokes. Whereas when they tried it again in Top Secret, which has even better jokes in it, mm -hmm. the story isn't as good because it does it doesn't have an underpinning. Wait, and, was Top Secret considered a failure when it came out? I I, I feel like I watched both after the fact and enjoyed I think it both. was I think it, it, it was disappointing because it, it wasn't as big. I mean, Airplane was gigantic, and Top Secret was just it did okay. But interesting, but it doesn't have it doesn't have much of a plot. I mean, it's got some Nazis in it and stuff, but it's got it's got great jokes, but they are just jokes. They're not hanging on a will they will they land the airplane, which is you know that keeps the the momentum going for the entire movie. You know, a movie does the the, the American Psycho thing for me as well. That um, and I, and this is a movie that is in probably my top ten. It is in my top ten. I love it. Uh, that I find to be a comedy and confounds other people and they think it's a drama is Carnal Knowledge, the uh, the oh. Nichols film. Yeah. Oh, you like discomfort. I do. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> as really long as it's do. other people's, though, of course. Well, Sitting I mean, on a bed of nails right now. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what it is? Is a movie theater is a safe if a, is a safe space. Yeah. It's a safe space to experience to all be. the things that we're too yeah, exactly. It's yeah. a safe space to experience all the things that we're scared to do in real life, right? Exactly. Yep. Like if yep. you're scared to do skydiving, if you're scared to go travel places, if you're scared to fall in love, I mean, anything uh, that terrifies you, uh, here's the one place where you can do it, and it's it's virtual yeah, reality, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess uh, I'm probably averse to confrontation as much as a director can be, and. <laughs> And I love that I get to feel uncomfortable in movies. It's yeah. a safe place for me to feel uncomfortable and really examine the things that humiliate me, the things that embarrass me, uh, the things I wish I, cha- I could change about myself. The moments where I feel like I've learned something but haven't done anything about it, that's the most <laughs> embarrassing. Uh, it's, I feel like all my movies are about characters who learn things and don't do anything. Um, and, but I think, you're, I, think, I think you're really right. <laughs> You, I, should, I never know. Sometimes people don't know this one. Have you seen Mike Lee's Abigail's Party? No, I've never seen it. Oh, my friend. Really? Oh, yeah. Watch it with a group of people. It is, um, it is literally the most uncomfortable cocktail party you'll ever go to in your life, and it's screamingly fucking fun. Oh, that sounds amazing. All yeah, right, it's, just, it's almost two hours of just the worst cocktail party ever. I'm, I'm making a list as we go here. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen it 15 times. He did it for TV. It's based on a play. It's incredible. But no, what I was trying to figure out was, was um, you know, had you ever, uh, how about with your own work? Has there ever been uh, something that you've done where maybe something you didn't think worked and then you saw it with an audience and realized it did? You know what? Um, it's funny. Okay, so my movies are considered comedies for the most part but they don't have a lot of jokes in them. Uh, I've always found that studios struggle cutting trailers for my films because none of the jokes live on their own as one-liners. Yes, no, that's You have to spend point. a half hour getting to know the character. And once you right. know the character, you realize, oh, this is funny. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's like you could spend the whole trailer trying to explain who the character is and why that should be funny. Uh, uh, with maybe the exception of thank you for smoking, because it's kind of inherently great to, to have a tobacco lobbyist. You know, you just, there, there's something kind of inherently there's comedic about someone selling t- cigarettes hard. Uh, but what always amazes me is the little moments that they find funny. The things that I find are just natural beats for the character. And the audience considers them jokes. And sometimes it's a little scary because there'll be a moment in a movie that I find is just personally exposing and the audience laughs at the moment as though, well, no one would ever think or say that or do that. That's hilarious. (laughs) And all I was trying to do in that moment is expose a part of my genuine self, you know? Yes. And now you can never do that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, it's, I was thinking about when you were talking about that earlier, because I, uh, you know, I was I was on set for William Hurt, and then the first time I saw a, a cut of History of Violence, um, there were just uh, three of us in the theater, me and David and Howard Shore. And I remember both on the set and then seeing the finished film, thinking up until now, everything had gone great, but my career was over. That this guy was just this amazing, once amazing actor, just because uh, I didn't quite get what he was doing. Um, mm. It was a tough character because he shows up in the last 10 minutes of the movie and he has to do all kinds of things narratively that are really hard to do. And then somehow to inject him with a personality was almost impossible. 
And then the first time I saw it with an audience, just changed everything because they 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 got it better than I did. Does that make sense? It was like yeah, hundred percent. And I think like any director, it's now has my favorite with, scene. Yeah. It's my favorite scene in the movie. Every director has worked with an actor who, in real time, you think they are going off the rails, and you're wondering how you are going to cut around this insane performance they're doing. Right. And inevitably, the audience somehow just completely falls in love with them, and the person, the actor that you were completely confident in, um, you know. Yeah, it's fine, but just doesn't oh. connect uh, with the audience. Uh, and it's confounding. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's tricky when you think, when the audience tell, it, when anyone tells you, you don't know them as well as you think you do. It stops you in your tracks and it, it checks your confidence. Yeah, yeah. But I guess, but if you did know them as well as we'd like to, we wouldn't sweat over whether or not the stuff was going to work. Yeah, I mean, and again. Give, give uh, what they want and become a billionaire. It becomes a question of how scared are you willing to be as a storyteller? Sure. Right? Yeah. And again, which brings me back to the kind of the, the original thing of I admire the bravery. And there are movies that really work, but they they follow a system of rules that, you know, will kind of get you there. And I and I like a lot of those movies. But the movies in which the director is really being brave and not only brave with what they're saying, which, you know, it's one way, but brave from a, in a form of technique that challenges what an audience is willing to put up with movie-wise. That, uh, that I really tip my hat to, and it really gets me excited. It, it makes me feel like I'm watching an actual high-wire act. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because there's that tension, that real tension of, of are they going to pull it off? Is it going to crash and burn? Is it? Uh, well, speaking yeah. of high wire acts, have you ever seen Lubitsch's uh, To Be or Not To Be? No, I haven't. Uh, you must. Really? It's it's uh it, it's it's the high wire act of comedy. Uh, it's it's a it's an anti-Nazi film made uh, in 1942, I think, just as we'd gotten into the war, and it's a comedy. Uh, set in Poland, and it was Carol Lombard's last picture. She um, she died on a, I think a, a, a tour, a, a Bond tour or something before the picture came out. So it was it, it didn't do well because it was like you know it was a comedy and she just died. And then, right. Uh, I've I've made pictures where people died before the picture came out and it, it never helps. <laughs> it's it's yeah. always a problem. But uh, to be or not to be is a a brilliantly. Uh, funny and dark movie and for for it to have been made uh, in 1942 uh with concentration camp jokes in it is uh it's 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 pretty remarkable I, really i recommend it highly i will it's great it's great uh you got any more i'm kind of uh running out i mean it's kind a tough of one. It is. Look, it's a tough one. And and obviously there's kind of, you know, the shades of gray here. Uh, there's, uh, you know, you can start talking about M. Night Shyamalan films and and he, you know, you look at The Village. I mean, there's definitely, you know, films of his that, uh, uh, you know, it's a good one. Uh, oh, my God, the film, the name just fell out of my head. Uh, Force Majeure. The oh, Swe yeah. The Swedish yes. film. Yes. That's a film where 
you open, you really think you know what you're watching a movie about, and then you realize you're not. And uh, I love what that movie says about relationships. I love what that movie says about confidence itself. Uh, I love the way that it breaks down masculinity. Um, and, uh, and it does so elegantly with brilliant performances and humor that you never expect, you know, uh, places you never expect comedy to come from. That's a movie I really admire. That's a movie I'm, yeah. I'm just plain jealous of. I watch, yeah. I go, I wish I had made that. I wish I could put my name on that movie. Well, so much of it has almost the promise of a certain type of comedy that it then turns around and delivers a certain type of drama. Uh, but it's still funny. Um, I never saw it and it always struck me as not, you know, and who knows, maybe they pulled it off. I don't know. I don't saw it. Did you see the American remake that struck me? as? No, I didn't. And I know the filmmakers and I, and I, I need to see it. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that was one of those where it came out while I was shooting mm-hmm. and, um, that, that, but I, it, I, I do need to see it. presented as more of a comedy, which I felt was not the way to go about that. Yeah. I don't know would do that. In the- I've heard, I heard they actually pulled it off, but I, but look, I, I love the original and yeah. again, it does that thing. It feels so real. It feels so human. And in that sense is uncomfortable and shows a bravery on the part of the storyteller um, to not look away and yeah. not, you know, curve the edges and not make people prettier or, 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 or kinder or more thoughtful or more generous or selfless than they actually are. And, and in doing so, gives the audience the opportunity if they're willing to self-examine and recognize traits that we all have. Yeah. And that we're all, you know, constantly covering up just a little bit. I mean, I know some selfless heroic people uh, who, who border flawless, but not many. Well, it's hard to talk about. You don't want to make yourself sound like too much of an asshole, but you know, the amazing thing in that film and for folks who haven't seen it, this sort of hinges on a father and his family um, at a ski lodge and there's a, an avalanche and he turns and runs without even thinking and and that's sort of the god help me inciting incident and what's amazing about it is every single person who watches it goes i wouldn't do that and at the same time every single person watching it then goes would i yeah (laughs) yeah because it's Uh, reflex it's not it's not the thoughtful thing you know and not all of us would jump on a grenade but (laughs) yeah and and what does that say about who we are and is there such a thing actually as bad or good people or yeah. uh do yeah. we simply have instincts that have been programmed based on decisions that were made generations before us you know uh i i love that that movie gets away from like abandons the idea of good and bad yes. people uh and particularly because uh, so much of filmmaking is often about well these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and any movie that 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 ha- takes that head on and particularly ones that heroize the villains i have a personal affection for sure but then um, again i also made a movie about the head lobbies for big tobacco and a guy who fires people for a living and a woman who's trying to end another couple's marriage i mean yeah you're not you're not uncomfortable in those ones. these, these uh... are my heroes so <laughs> protagonists not heroes um <laughs> Thank you. These are my protagonists. Yes, yes. The um, the uh, I also I, I keep worrying. The, you should uh, uh, my my favorite movie I think this year, um, kind of fits into this a uh, bit. Was a Danish film called Riders of Justice with Mads Mikkelsen, um, which presents as Mads Mikkelsen doing the 
you know, Clint Eastwood revenge movie you've always wanted to see him be in and then turns into something else entirely and is screaming. Oh, that funny, sounds good. But incredibly painful, very sad, very happy, very dark, very light. Um, I believe there's there. an American remake on the way. Of course. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it must not be done. We can't do it. We can't do those movies here. It's, it's too, it's too, it'll be, it'll be Unforgiven meets the Three Stooges if they do it over here. I don't know how an American, that, anyway. I'm sure um, you could pitch that at various places around town and get it. Exactly. Yes, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. Uh, uh, well, cool. Are we, have we, have we exhausted your list there? I, I think I may be running out here. Uh, that's okay. But yeah, you did, uh, you, you, you did yeoman, yeoman-like work. That's yes. very kind of you. Uh, well, look, I mean, uh, it's just fun to talk about movies and it's fun to talk about movies, uh, particularly with two people who know way more about movies and who have, uh, you know, uh, I've seen way more than I have, and I've I've written down already so many new names of movies that I need to see as a result of this conversation. Uh, but look, it's a uh, and it's insane thing to sit down and try to make a film, yeah. right? Yeah. Like we'd have to be crazy exactly. to think that we deserve to spend the kind of money and what's worse, them. having done it once, you're crazy to do it again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and. You know, we're honored by the people who follow us in the battle and uh, and who who make the sacrifices that uh, that make it possible so that we get to tell these crazy ass stories. And then when you actually do something with it, uh, even more so, uh, which I think is why we probably admire these people as though that you know they're they're, they're you know they're they're Sir Hillary or something because it yeah. it seems insane uh, that they accomplish it. And yeah. uh, it's an honor to talk to both of you about it. Oh, thank you. No, man. And as a fan of your films for many, many years, easily the same. Um, and it no, is, you were, you were, you were a good get for us. Yes. That's, that's, um, that's, that's kind of you. I hope that age is well. And, and uh, um, thank you yeah, for having I, me on. No, it's a pleasure. And I'm, I'm, uh, I suspect you'll be, or have been doing a lot of, uh, we'll be seeing a lot of you in the days to come. Um, but uh, I'm right at the end of it. This is kind of the last thing, actually. I, uh, really? I, yeah, tomorrow night I got one more. I got him to do uh, an interview uh, at an IMAX theater where they're gonna. My interview will be live. Simulcast. IMAX. Simulcast to other IMAX. In IMAX. Yeah, see which, all your nose hairs. That's what wow. I'm saying. We're directors. We're not oh, supposed Max. to be on screen. This is not a good. Yeah, I, but, even, much, but that's that's rough for. I mean, that's that's rough for like George Clooney in his prime. I don't mean look. That you're, you're not, not making that's... me feel any better about this. <laughs> I would much rather it be a simulcast of audio. Your left nostril will be bigger than the oh, largest head in the God, room. I, I, you know. I, uh, there, at least I'll do, be in a movie theater. Uh, exactly. Do they, you're, yes. you're do they do it. like, do they do, I'm fascinated by that. I've never, I've never seen it. Do they do, they have to like, you get made up and everything for that, right? There's somebody who knows how to do IMAX makeup. Will, will there be grooming? Uh, no, you, I, I, maybe, I, you know, I think you have to just, look, I think every, at You've some point. You've got to insist on grooming. I'm telling every you. Every director not, has not, to not. just look in the mirror and go, I'm a director. Yeah, okay. exactly. You know? <laughs> I have a face for radio. They, you're yeah. like, they, I, I, I hope they find me. I'm just funny. saying, no, you know, almost like nobody has it. a face for IMAX, and I'm just all, you yeah. know, I would just go in. It would be like, well, zip that um, or something, a hair coming out of your nose. That's uh, I have, to, have to change your name to Max. Uh, will it be 3D? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I hope not. All right, guys, uh, thank, thank you for having thank me. Thank you on. so much. Um, amazing. Good luck with the film. Appreciate uh, it. It's uh, very much looking forward to it. And it was a blast talking to you, man. Ah, uh, you're really kind. Check All right, out Abigail's party. Abigail's party. Nothing no, no I got it. It's on the list. It's on the list. All right. I'll see you later. <laughs>
Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made. Stay safe out there, folks. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.